0: Hello, and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and my guest today has been called one of the finest poets of her generation. A small-town kid who went on to become the city of Victoria's first-ever poet laureate. Carla Funk has been surrounded by stories for all of her life. She was born in Vanderhoof, British Columbia, and grew up hearing uncles telling stories around the living room. Someday, she got a typewriter and decided to tell her own. And it's led to a collection of her work in over a dozen books and anthologies, along with a career in which she spent over 15 years teaching university creative writing. Her latest book, Every Little Scrap and Wonder, is her first foray into memoir, part ode to childhood, part love letter to rural life. I caught up with Carla to talk about the stories behind this book, And she opened by reading from the first chapter, Patchwork Crazy Quilt. Here it is.
1: Every September, as the last green of summer dropped to umber and rust, and the winds chilled toward frost, we ushered in the fall with a bonfire. This was no celebratory rite. This was cleanup from the season past and preparation for the winter ahead. In a clearing in the trees, on the same ground where last year's fire had burned, a pile of ashes hinted at the future. Over a starter of bark scraps, lumber odds and ends, crumpled newspapers, and a few punky blocks of wood, my dad dumped gasoline from a jerry can, then took the half-smoked cigarette from his mouth and flicked it on the heap. The spark flared to sizzle, then to high flame shock within seconds, threatening to singe our eyelashes with the heat. When the surge had calmed enough to let my mother relax her grip on the garden hose, our purge began in earnest.
0: Uh, Thank you so much, Carla, for starting with that. That image uh, of the bonfire really lingered with me. Uh, I think, first of all, it gives a great kind of personification of your dad uh, flicking the cigarette butt onto the fire and uh, this idea of lighting a bonfire with gasoline from a jerry can (laughs) I think that gives a an idea of uh, of personality Uh, but what what is this purging what's what does that represent or what was the ritual that your family uh, took part in year after year?
1: Well, it, it very much was a practical fire. It was the kind of fire where you got rid of all of the detritus from the season that had just passed, and we were completely oblivious to any kind of environmental sustainability. <laughs> so anything that could burn would burn, and it was part of it was part of the the cleanup process. And what I remember too was how we would then have a wiener roast on the backside of the fire. So who knows what chemicals were ingested in that process, but it's part of the rural it's part of the opening uh, setting the scene the sort of metaphor of memory and how memory can work throwing everything on the heap and seeing what happens. But um very much it was it was practical.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about your family. Uh where you where you're from, both in terms of mom and dad and and your brother and kind of how you fit into it all.
1: Sure, um I grew up, I was born and raised in the center of the province. The sign, if you drive through my hometown, says Vanderhoof, the heart of it all. And it always gave me this feeling that I really lived at the center of the universe, which was probably completely uh, the self-centeredness of childhood, but also this idea that, wow, we're at the center of something. Mm -hmm. So Vanderhoof um, in the central interior of British Columbia was where I was born. My mom was born in the United States. My dad was born in Saskatchewan, and they both, in the true style of the Mennonite people, made their way from one place to the other, and they both ended up in Vanderhoof. Um, uh, my dad, when he was a baby, and my mom, as a young girl, and that's where they met and married.
0: You give this great image in the book. Uh, I mean, that already the the flicking of the cigarette butt onto the pile, but of your dad being a kid who you know, when he was a boy, went to church, but then would sneak out behind the barn for a gin and cigarettes. And then your mom seems, in some respects, kind of like a polar opposite of being this uh, dutiful woman who goes from Oregon with her seven siblings north to British Columbia. How did they, how did they even meet? Uh,
1: the true story of how they met is that my dad was a logging truck driver, and he would drive by her as she walked to school. There's a there was about nine di- nine years difference. He was nine years older. And uh, he would offer her a ride to school. So she would take the ride from him, and he would drop her off at school and carry on to haul his logs out into the bush. Um, and somewhere along the way, he said, we should get married. And she said, okay. <laughs> and that's pretty much the story. She, I think, has a pretty sheltered Mennonite young woman, didn't have any idea of other possibilities, and so if a man says, "Will you marry me?" you, as a young woman, say yes, and that's kind of how it went.
0: <laughs> what did you What did you think you've taken from from either side of personality wise? If you can identify things in yourself now uh, that you've gotten from from dad or from mom?
1: Oh, that's that's a good question. Uh, depending on who you talk to in the family, they may point out different characteristics, yeah. but. I would say my stubbornness probably comes from my dad um, and from my mother, a fierce sense of the practical. So much so that writing always felt like something I shouldn't do because it seemed very impractical. There were jobs listed in the classifieds. My mother would remind me there were always listings for legal secretaries. That would be sort of like writing because Uh you would sit at a typewriter or a computer and you would write things. And so I always had this idea that writing was frivolous, luxurious, and was something impractical. So the practical from my mother and from my father, um, also a love of dogs. I know that sounds silly, but he was so much an animal person and it broke his heart every time we had to butcher. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, he, yeah, he, he died about seven years ago and he was a, he was a complicated man but uh, an animal lover and somebody who was very stubborn. So probably those traits. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: you mentioned Vanderhoof where you grew up already uh, in the, the heart of it all, central British Columbia, I think, of course, uh, me, being from southern Ontario, I'm obliged to say that Ontario is, of course, the center of the universe. Of course, of course. <laughs> but um, but Vanderhoof, what was that like as a small town? Uh, I mean, in, you, you give so much space to it, I think, on the page in this book. Uh, it really kind of comes alive as a place that, for you, lingers in, in the mind, it seems to.
1: Yeah, the small towns are all the same in their this is my experience at least talking to people who are from small towns especially writers from small towns small towns do something to the imagination and they share that so they're all the same in that they they're a great cultivator of i think the literary imagination because because of their size they force you not force you they train you i think to look at the world up close there are fewer people and there's more space. And so you pay attention to everything that pops up on the landscape, be it a new person in town or the way the season shifts and the trees are just that much more apparent against the landscape. So I think that small towns do that. Um, Vanderhoof in particular, it has its quirks and charms. And as a kid growing up, I didn't have a sense that it was small. That was the the part that i didn't see until i started to hit adolescence to me the town seemed huge and there were still people i didn't know and but what i what still stays with me and why i wanted to return to it was because everything about the way i see the world now no matter where i go is always framed by my childhood context and I was really interested to go back into it and see well what did it do to my thinking how did it shape the way I perceive the world why am I drawn to things that are on the margins and why am I drawn to look at things in a magnified capacity and I, I think it has a lot to do with Vanderhoof the way it provides a frame around the the imagination and I don't know if that makes sense but I think small towns are wonderful training grounds for writers, and I think that Bandrau in particular gave me so many gifts when it came to when it comes to um, looking at people and studying the world up close, and also that fierce practicality of the rural and the blue collar. It was that was a gift to me as well. Um, it made me want to use words that people like my dad would understand. Mm-hmm. He was a blue-collar trucker. He was a logging truck driver, and he didn't read much of what I wrote, but I I love the idea of writing, um, not not to be accessible for the sake of accessibility, but accessible, uh, welcoming, I think, in a way that people from Vanderhoof, the people that I grew up and love they would be welcome to read what I've written.
0: Writing, I think, in a voice that's true to a place, perhaps, too. It it feels authentic to, to where it's from. I that, yeah. I think uh, what you had mentioned there earlier, this idea of uh, one's perspective being shaped by what you grow up with, I think that's something that I've thought more and more about, I think especially moving away from home and, and being out of province uh, it has a way of Drawing you back to what's maybe harder to see when you're when, when you're in a place when you're when you're kind of up front, but being at a distance now to see just how much I take with me from from my home of Kitchener Waterloo. Um, but I, I think in the context of your book, uh, I do wonder whether this would be I would figure this would be a very different book if it was written about your adolescent period, say, as opposed to to childhood. Why childhood uh, for for this book in this place?
1: Well, I am. Um in the process of writing the second memoir, which is adolescence, which is different in tone, I'm realizing, wow, okay, um it definitely my even my view of the hometown of Vanderhoof shifted dramatically once I hit probably the early teen years, um, my view of my family, my view of my upbringing that that's probably has more to do with just there's some sort of psychological definitions of the brain being aware of itself and aware of surroundings. But childhood interested me because there's a, there's a, I don't, an innocence that allows the imagination to just receive sensory data and not analyze it, but just take it in and absorb it. And later, later in life, one takes it and starts to examine it and wonder, where did that come from? And why do I remember this? That was perhaps the the great mystery to me, is why do I have all of these very, very vivid memories from childhood? And um, I think that, again, that's one of the gifts that Vanderhoof and my upbringing gave me, is this this rush of very stark and uh, visceral sensory data that stayed with me. And I I love this. I can't remember the writer who said it, um, but the the quote was right about what haunts you, and I love that idea. I'm not haunted in a negative way by mm. Vanderhoof, but it has it stays with me mm. so much so that I thought I just have to get this book out. And I didn't even know if it would become a book. It started as sort of a few chapters or essays, personal essays, and then it just sort of gathered momentum. And I thought, ah, we'll see what can happen um, if it shapes into a collection, and it and it
0: has. Uh, I'm glad to hear, first of all, I'm glad to hear that there's going to be a follow-up to this book, uh, one about adolescence, because I think that's just <laughs> going to make for interesting reading. Uh, but uh, you're a person who moved away after high school, right? Moved out of town after high school. Was it a process then, Vanderhoof, of first maybe wanting to go, but then uh, a gradual reappreciation of place? Or what is, what's kind of your relationship with, with place and with where you grew up? Uh, what's kind of the progression of that been like over time?
1: Oh, I wanted out. By the time I was probably 15, I, I started salivating over university course calendars. Mm-hmm. Um, neither my mom nor my dad had ever gone to post-secondary education. My dad didn't even finish high school. Um, it was expected in his generation that you would probably, as the eldest son, you would certainly quit school by about grade eight and you would start working and you would contribute to the family income. So that's what he did. My, my mom did finish high school, but um, post-secondary education was this foreign world to most of the family on both my mom and dad's side. If you went to post-secondary school, it was Bible school, mm-hmm. and it was because you were going to be a a, a preacher. Right. And so this idea of going to a secular university was oh, you know a little bit uh, out there, but... Yeah. What replaced the Sears Christmas wish book of my childhood, wanting all the toys, was the university. I wanted out. I wanted to know what other people knew. And um, I was so glad to leave for so many reasons, but I was just, get me out of here. And it was in my adult years. After getting married and having a baby, both things I did not want to do because those were so much Vanderhoof things. Um, I had this attitude about all of the things expected of somebody from my hometown, and, from my hometown, and then I ended up doing them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but um, it was looking back, once I had my own child, and seeing that the city cannot offer the same experiences. And I would talk to my husband, who grew up in Victoria, and I would talk about like shooting guns and riding motorbikes as a kid. And he'd just kind of look at me with these sad eyes and say, yeah, I got to ride around the block on my Big wheel, you know, Mm -hmm. tricycle or whatever. So I realized that I had this really amazing childhood for its sort of wildness, Um, and I, I, the idea of going back and visiting that as something I didn't really realize that it was a rare thing until I moved to a city Mm. where it is rare. If anybody grows up in a city, it's rare. To hand a six-year-old child a pellet gun and say, "Okay, be back in a few hours," um, and that I love that I I had that kind of childhood. I think it, um, I know it, it gave me gifts for sure.
0: One of the most, I think, indelible images for me, which I think is also true to what could almost only happen in a small town. There's this chapter where you talk about the helicopter coming to town. <laughs> uh, can you tell me about that, what, uh, what that was all about? Oh,
1: Lord Almighty. That was one of those childhood events that happened every year in Vanderhoof for a few years. I'm not sure why they stopped it, probably for the various vandalism that happened in the wake of it. But I would describe this story to people offhand mentioning it in casual conversation to people who didn't grow up in home, in small towns, and they would look with just awe at how does this sort of thing happen. So the story goes, that, and it's a true story, every year in the spring, the the Vanderhoof Co-op would have what they called the annual ping-pong ball drop, and they would hire one of the forestry helicopters to fly over the parking lot, and they would dump hundreds, thousands of ping pong balls into the parking lot for all of the Vanderhoovians who had gathered to try to scramble for these ping pong balls and find the ones that had numbers written on them. And then you would march in with your very, you know, you're gripping your ping pong ball that you've grabbed away from somebody else in the parking lot. People have, oh, wounds, <laughs> torn clothing, um there there was there were cars, like with side view mirrors getting ripped off. My aunt's antenna got ripped off her car. I don't know why people parked in the parking lot, but it was chaos and mayhem, but so fun. And you would take your ping pong ball with the number on it and you'd go into the co-op and you would get in line and you would claim whatever prize was affiliated with the number on the ball. And um, I just thought this was, it was like God himself had just opened the heavens and poured out blessing, <laughs> except for the fact that I won some really dud prizes, right. but... As a kid, this was just normal. This is what happened every spring—the annual ping pong ball drop—and I realize now, looking back, it's like, oh, that was like a scene from *The Gods Must Be Crazy*. <laughs> but uh, yes, super fun.
0: Are there strategies? Do people are people trying to you know have these giant garbage bags <laughs> to collect ping pong balls, or are there are there more successful ways than others of of winning?
1: You know, as a kid, I don't. Re- the strategy was simply um, run, run as fast as you can. (laughs) And the weird part, the most challenging part was that these ping pong balls bounce pretty high when they hit from a really high, from a height, they bounce on the pavement. And so they're going everywhere. Like you can plant yourself somewhere and have just as good a chance as probably running across the pavement, but we would just all run. It was, um, when I think back on it and that mental image of just scrambling on my hands and knees with people, that maybe I knew them, maybe I knew them from church, maybe they were strangers, it didn't matter, it was tooth and nail, we're just grabbing ping pong balls. People would come up with blood on their hands, like, it was, it was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, you mentioned in, in this book about your community, Vanderhoof, being a place where everyone is either Mennonite or Mormon mm. or going to hell. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and uh, as someone who grew up in a Mennonite family as well, I, ah. I, I know, well, I'm mean, just reading the book and the, the last names of people, it's like, yeah, I, 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 could, I get an idea right away of, of who's in this book. <laughs> uh, what, was, what was that like? What was Vanderhoof like um, as a Mennonite or growing up in a Mennonite family there. Uh, how did that shape you through the years? That's a very broad question. It but. is. Um,
1: but uh, well, at one point, Vanderhoof boasted the most churches per capita in all of Canada. So that gives you an idea in a community of about 5,000 people, 4,500 people with all of the outlying, like way outlying rural areas. It's a small town. It's scattered you know, quite far out geographically. But Seriously, uh, if you didn't go to church, I was always so shocked as a kid when I met somebody who didn't go to church because just like adults would say, oh, what do you do for work? Um, And the answer would usually be, I'm in forestry or I'm in farming. Mm -hmm. Um, If you said, where do you go to church? You expected somebody to say, list one of the, I don't know, seven Mennonite churches in Vanderhoof or the Mormon church. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And maybe if they were a little bit... um, unique they might go to the Lutheran Church was, which the word on the street was that they danced, which was wow because <laughs> Mennonites don't dance. Um, so whenever I met somebody who didn't go to church, I just thought, you poor person, you're gonna go to hell and you have no idea that that's the childhood understanding, of course. And uh, how it shaped me, it became a rhythm in my life where every day of the week, I don't know if you had this experience as a kid, but every day of the week had a feeling to it. And Sunday had a very particular feeling. There was the the ritual of waking up early, having a bath, and as a kid you get dressed in your nice clothes and you have a nice breakfast and then you have a, go and sit in a long, boring sermon and then you go home from church and you have a, a meal like roast beef and then everybody has a nap. You might go to you know grandma's house for the afternoon, but there was a rhythm to Sunday that was punctuated with social activity, food, and a long, boring sermon, and that was just the rhythm of the week. So on a practical level, it gave... My childhood, this very particular rhythm and a a Sunday had a a certain characteristic to it. But the bigger gift that I didn't realize for probably decades after childhood was that growing up with the Mennonite tradition, that sort of faith tradition, I sat listening to the Bible read aloud as a kid, and it, it knit into me rhythms that... I believe planted the seed for writing that Mm. made me appreciate language. We were always told words have power and it sat in me like a seed waiting to germinate. And when I went to university and I was listening to poems being read aloud, it sounded a lot like the King James Bible. So those rhythms I think got seeded in me really young. And then that other part of that gift of the faith tradition is that I grew up having just an understanding an awareness that that I was always looking at two texts walking through the world. There was the natural world, the physical world, and then there was the metaphysical world and we would call it flesh and spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, There was the very physical world, but behind it, behind this very thin veil, there was the spiritual realm. So going into writing, studying literature I got that right away from even in high school. I got that right. I was like, "Oh, of course, you've got the words on the page, but you've got this other meaning behind them," and it trained me to always look at the world um, with an eye on the physical as being emblematic of the, of the, of the transcendent. And I, I, I do feel, um, I feel, I would, I feel for people who don't grow up with that because there's a richness that's lost. I think that you know, we we live in a world where we're, we're sort of in system failure mm. and people are wandering around looking for meaning and not believing that any structure holds meaning. And I, I can see the disillusionment, but I, I think I, I just, it got sewn into me so early where of course there's meaning. You just have to look at the natural world around you and you can see it. And I love that. I love that gift that was given to me from, from that Mennonite inheritance. Mm.
0: I think my my Sunday ritual. I, I felt a lot of that as well, but it was sort of like this: nine a.m. until one p.m. was kind of you knew uh, my time was blocked up by mm. probably somebody else talking to me, yeah. <laughs> whether that's Sunday school or then the sermon and and singing songs and then uh, waiting basically to dr- drive home again <laughs> until I could you know, go back to playing video games Hot or toys. playing with my friends or whatever. Um, if I know anything about growing up in a Mennonite community, is that Mennonites love to break off and split from one another and form other Mennonite groups. Was that the case in Vanderhoof? Was Or were there some groups that would not talk to other groups? Or or was everyone more or less the same kind uh, of Mennonite, where it was, a, you know, kind of a, uh, a friendliness there, if you will?
1: No, there's like the spectrum of Mennoniteness. My, my dad's side of the family was very different than my mom's side of the family. And they were both of the sort of Mennonite tradition. My mom's mom grew up Amish in Kansas and then gradually made their, she made their, I guess they, when she was a young girl, they switched over to the Mennonite church. I'm not sure why, but, um, my mother's side of the family, their Mennoniteness was women don't wear pants, women don't wear makeup, women don't wear jewelry, Men don't even wear neckties or wedding rings because that's too ornamental. So Mm -hmm. very, uh, very strict in their adherence to being in the world, but not of the world. But that all relaxed eventually. It just, everybody sort of calmed down. Mm -hmm. Uh, My dad's side of the family, they, oh, the men smoked and drank and the women wore pants. And um, it it was what would be termed the fallen Mennonite, Mm -hmm. which was a term I learned later. Uh, I didn't know it as a kid, but the fallen Mennonite uh, side of the spectrum. Then within Vanderhoof, there'd be the Mennonites who don't believe in chrome on their vehicles because chrome is too flashy and worldly, and the women sit on one side of the church and the men on the other. I didn't grow up with that. My dad did and my mom did. But the church, the Mennonite church I grew up in was pretty casual in its... You could wear jewelry and nobody was going to look at you and think you were going to hell. Um, And my mom's side of the family, most of them went to a different Mennonite church, which eventually got sort of super wild and a bit Pentecostal, which was strange because the women still covered their heads, but they were dancing around. It was very, yeah. So I didn't grow up quite that way, but um, yeah, Do Mennonites split off and form other groups? The answer is yes, they do. And they all uh, probably look askance at each other and assume the worst of each other. Or uh, we probably, like all humans, we all judge each other's choices and what they do and what they don't do and how much chrome and jewelry they're wearing. Right.
0: So I I grew up in a city in, in Kitchener, Waterloo, but my church was in a very small town outside of that Uh, and so there was a difference between my friends who I would see on a day to day at school and then the people I went to church with, uh, were your friends, like, was there a dissonance there between the the friends that you're spending time with and the people you'd see at church or were they all kind of in the same boat as you?
1: There, there was a bit of a dissonance in, but it was more in the fact that my dad's drinking and smoking, these sort of behaviors that were, we all knew, you know, you're not supposed to do this. But because he was a logger and he liked to drink and smoke and play cards and do all these things on, well, not even on the sly, a little bit on the sly. But um, our, my, our home, our family home growing up was always populated with my dad's trucker friends. So on a Saturday night, it wasn't uncommon for me to fall asleep to the sounds of my dad's trucker buddies and their wives Um, laughing it up at the card table. And if I got up to go get a glass of water, I would see a haze of blue cigarette smoke above the dining table. And uh, they'd be drinking and smoking and playing cards till all hours. And then in the morning, we'd get up and go to church. My dad stopped going to church when I was quite young, but my mother would dutifully get us, my brother and me, who's my brother's three years older, get us up for church. And we'd go and my dad would maybe be sleeping off the night before. (laughs) So because that was in my home, to have friends... Who weren't, um, who were not the Sunday school types, it it surprised me always, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't unusual, I guess, to see adults who behaved in ways um, that my dad did because they were they were all I, they were around me and I was around them.
0: One of the parts in childhood that you talk about in this book, and you've mentioned it a little, a little bit already, just growing up in a small town and you know being around BB guns and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this section where you're in a canvas tent, it's musty, and you're mm-hmm. brushing the hair of a Malibu Barbie, but wishing <laughs> that you had a gun instead. Uh, what what was play like as a kid, and and maybe compared to what the, what the expectation of play ought to be for you know a girl in in a town like that?
1: Well, all of my girl cousins, they always struck me as so pure and crafty in and I mean crafty in the way of having a needle and thread. Um, and I did not, I could not relate. It got worse in adolescence where I felt the peer pressure to have an embroidery hoop with me every time I went to a family gathering. Um, but as a kid, because we grew up a little bit rural, and I, and we were surrounded by boys, there weren't a lot of girls until these two girls moved down the road. It was me and my older brother and the other boys from the neighborhood. And because there were trails in the woods to be made or to be uh, trampled down, we went off on our ATVs, or little motorbikes, and we had our guns. And most of the play, it was the classic go outside and get some fresh air. So we would go out and we played war and actually today I was walking through the woods and I saw a stick in the shape of a gun and I actually picked it up and made gun noises. There's nobody around, but it was this weird urge. And then I had to text my brother and saying, what kind of gun would this be? And he said, well, oh, that looks like the kind that you would use to shoot a Nazi. I was like, oh yeah. And that was the narrative of our childhood, right? We would have these guns made out of sticks or old planks and pipe. And there was an M14 mounted on a clay hill. We had clay grenades. We had pine cone grenade. I mean, it was... Where that came from in a Mennonite pacifist upbringing, I'm not <laughs> sure. Maybe it was from watching A Team on the sly, but childhood was very—I um, don't want to say feral, but a little bit—in that we, I would just we would go outside and we would until it got dark, until you heard the neighbor boys' mother whistle, and that was usually the sign supper was ready. They had to go home, so it was probably time for us to go home. But it was hugely outdoors. Very much going and playing in the trees with whatever the woods would offer you, and trying not to get anybody too injured. Basically, mm-hmm.
0: that that fascination with guns. Wonder if it's like a repressed, you know, urge <laughs> to, to get out uh, what what's you know supposedly not allowed or whatnot. Um, th- there is one one last thought I thought that lingered with me on the Mennonite front, and and you write about living in you describe it as like a surveillance state. I think because it's this, this idea that there's this ever present Watching presence over everything that you do and that your your sin will find you out um, what what was that like as a kid to to be you know in that environment, or how did that change as you grew into adolescence?
1: Surveillance state was exactly what it felt like, and I don't know if you could relate to that, but there was always this sense of the eye in the sky watching, and it was both my mother's eye and it was the eye of God. And it was the eyes of other people who were good and holy and pure, but the sense of nothing was hidden. And so if you tried to hide anything, it was only going to get found out anyway. And there was that verse from the Bible, and my mother would quote it often as a sort of um, a way of keeping us in check, I think. (laughs) Be sure your sins will find you out. And it had a sort of Shakespearean iambic pulse to it that just knit itself Mm -hmm. into my Into my brain, so I would hear the rhythm of those words. Anytime I'd done something really bad, I would hear that phrase popping up in my head be sure your sins will find you out. And they always did. So it just only confirmed my idea that, oh, yeah, God's watching. He's whispering things to my mother, or my mother's watching and she's whispering things to God. But there was a sense of nothing being hidden from view. But there was also a comfort in it that because there's somebody always watching, I'm okay. So Yes, I can never escape the eye, but also if anything bad happens, the eye is always there to come and rescue me and shine a beam down and that I think there was there was this equal parts haunt and comfort.
0: I got that sense in reading this book about about your mother and being that kind of person that uh, seemed to always be there as well, you know, whether it was uh, getting muddy in a ditch and and needing to be cleaned up or or n- just needing comfort at a moment's notice uh, what what kind of influence did she have uh, on you as uh, as a presence
1: as a kid, she seemed to me somebody almost mythic in her in her strength. she could do anything and in a world and in a context and in a generation i think where Women were expected, especially in in the small town, in a Mennonite tradition, women were expected to get married, have children, serve their husbands. She was doing all those things, but yet I saw this fierce independent streak in her. And I wonder sometimes, what if I had been born in her generation? Would I have just followed the script, handed to me, but always... I think I saw in her that quality of independence that, I recognized it in myself later, but she she just struck me as somebody who was highly capable of anything. She could split wood, she could um, rescue, comfort, heal, do all of these things. And I, as, as a kid, she just seemed ever-present, powerful, and the one that we would go running to if we needed help. Also the one we would run from if we didn't <laughs> want to get in trouble. Um, so I, I, I think it was adolescence where I failed to see her strength and her independence because I just wanted my own. And I was probably typical in my adolescence of just being completely narcissistic. And after I had a child of my own, I looked at my mom with a different set of eyes again and said, oh, this is how much sacrifice, um, a woman gives when she has a child. And, uh, so she's always been this figure of strength and resilience, I think.
0: When did your love for writing come into the picture?
1: I always had this enjoyment of words, um, both in the sort of oral storytelling that my mom's side of the family, all my uncles were really good storytellers, and I loved story first. Then I think I loved music, and together those sort of had a baby in my brain and it became my love of poetry which I didn't even know anything about poetry when I landed at the University of Victoria when I was 18 years old in fact um, we're sitting in a building right now in which I had my first year poetry class and that was an illuminating course for me because suddenly words I'd always been told words have power they have meaning and suddenly they had they were wooing me to play with them. And so I, I liked writing as a kid. I enjoyed it as an adolescent, probably mostly as a way to either sort out all of those ridiculous emotions that adolescents have. And then I wanted to say something important. I think that was that urge of wanting to to find a voice, you know, those cliches about writing. Find my voice. But um I think story was first and foremost at the heart of my desire to write. Stories have shaped me. I mean, the ones I grew up with were the Sunday school stories, the Bible stories, and they informed my view of the world in such a way that I couldn't look at the world without thinking of them. and i I recognized the power of story and the power of language. So really, it was high school into university that I thought, oh, I, I think I want to keep doing this and I had no idea what I was doing, but
0: so there was a, a family oral storytelling tradition of sorts, at least on your mother's side?
1: Absolutely. Because my mom's side of the family didn't believe in televisions, um, we had one, but you know, we kind of like covered it up. No, we didn't cover it up, but we did not turn it on when my cousins came over from my mom's side because it was, I mean, I don't know if you ever heard this joke, but often the television was referred to as the devil vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The devil vision in the corner. Uh, my dad's side of the family, fine, go ahead, watch TV, just glue yourself to NASCAR and football and the wonderful world of Disney and Wild Kingdom. Those were the shows they watched. But my mom's side of the family, they didn't have television. So there was a lot of storytelling, a lot of reading that went on. So anytime there was a family gathering, usually my Uncle Glenn would be the one to kick it off, and he would start telling stories about near-fatal bear attacks or the time he was hunting and almost got, you know, thumped by a grizzly or the time he got his finger ripped off in the lumber mill. And we kids would, I mean, that was better than television to be by the fire and having an uncle relay these stories with such intensity. I mean, they were scarier than any movie. And I loved that. And I loved what I loved how they drew people in. I loved the way the story gathered people. It's so ancient. I suppose we sit Mm -hmm. by a fire and we listen to people tell a story but they knew how to tell really good stories, and they, um, they they certainly drew me in. And why wouldn't I want to do that too?
0: Mm-hmm. Were, were these fresh stories or were these favorites that are being told and retold you know, again and again?
1: We would definitely say, tell us the one about the – and yeah. then Uncle Glenn would pull that one out. But, they, yeah, there, were, there was a canon of stories. And, again, I didn't realize how strange this was until my husband said, most people don't do this. About every – I don't know, every few years or so – there would be a reenacting of my grandparents' courting story that would be acted out for the whole family. My uncle and aunt would dress up in old like Amish Mennonite clothing and they would play out the courting story of how they met and married. And again, this was sort of like watching TV. It was like, oh, the episode where grandpa courted grandma and they got married. And yeah, when I described this to my husband who did not grow up Mennonite, did not grow up going to church, did not grow up. With in a small town, he just looked at me and said, people don't do that. People don't act <laughs> out their grandparents' courting stories. I'm like, oh, well, we did. So, um, yes, there would be the favorites, the canon. And then there was this one story at the heart of all of the stories, and it was the story of the Little Red Apron, which was really a story of the Mennonite exodus from my, uh, my mom's side of the family, way back, the ancestors who came through Russia, through all of the persecution and uh, one of the little girls was wearing this little red apron, and it became this passed-down symbol of escape in all of the exodus, and they ended up fleeing to safety in the in the United States. But those stories would get told over and over and over again, so much so that they were almost indistinguishable in my childhood mind from Bible stories. They were our Bible stories. They were just uh, the family stories.
0: So, you get to high school and you're, you're fifteen years old, you're looking at the end of, of high school in a few years and you want to get out of town. What's the plan? Uh, I mean you're, when when does writing or, or writing within a university context kind of kind of start to formulate in your mind?
1: I had a high school English teacher in grade ten who came for only a year or two, but she came straight out of UVIC's creative writing program. And I didn't even know you could study creative writing. I thought mostly you studied things like you could study English literature and maybe take a creative writing course, but I didn't realize you could do an entire degree. And I've had encouragement along the way from different teachers saying, oh, you should write or you should study journalism. And I was working at the Vanderhoof newspaper um, as a typesetter, which I wasn't really setting physical type, I was just typing. But I could type really fast. So somehow in my brain, the working at the newspaper, the possibility of a creative writing degree, a teacher who was young and cool and had studied writing, they all converged in my mind to see, give me this possibility that I could do that. I could go and study writing. And so it was always sort of out there as a possibility, but because I come from practical people I also thought I really need to get a job that's going to pay money so I thought I'm going to be a teacher or I'm going to be a lawyer or a journalist mm-hmm. and so I did work at the Van Dyke newspaper and they had hired a, a summer student who after a few weeks on the job turned out to be uh, struggling with alcoholism <laughs> and so I was the typist and they looked at me and I was I think 15 or 16 at the time and they said hey do you want to be a reporter mm-hmm. That's what it takes, in Vanderhoof, Do you, are you, can you type, mm-hmm. and are you alive? No, I'm joking. But they gave me the job of summer reporter. I didn't know what I was doing, but I would drive around Vanderhoof feeling very important, writing stories about, oh, you know, the manager at the co-op or something, and I started to feel like, oh, I can write. They actually gave me a weekly humor column as a 16-year-old. Bad idea. I look back at those, and they're just embarrassing. But it was an avenue to try to stitch sentences together and tell stories. And that got me hooked pretty early. Um, I quickly realized I didn't want to study journalism because I didn't want to have to tell the truth all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it certainly all of those factors, they coalesced somehow and just became a catalyst for why not try and study it. So, so yeah, it was a mix of things that led me to study writing.
0: Victoria, was it was it more so this creative writing program or was it the thought of I'm going to get away and I'm going to be on an island that's even farther removed from, from my hometown, the convergence of those things?
1: All of it. All of it. I had this great fantasy of just going, uh, leaving Vanderhoof and never returning or in the fantasy that would play out in my mind. I would return and people would say, oh, she lives in some other city. I did not want to live in a small town. I had this idea of myself living in a city, basically the Hollywood cliche, Mm -hmm. of living in a high-rise condominium and I would kick off my heels at the end of the day um, and I would drink my glass of wine and I would put on my jazz music and I would live this very important urban life. And what's funny is that uh, the older I got, the less that even seemed like a possibility of like that I would even want. Um, I find myself, the older I get, the more I'm, I love the rural and I love the, I love the, the wildness of the outdoors, the natural world, but Oh gosh, at 15, get me out of here, never send me back. And that pretty much stayed for, for several years (laughs) afterwards. (laughs) But I, all that to say, I'm so thankful for where I grew up and gosh, if I'd grown up in Victoria, I couldn't have written a book about it. Mm. Too many people have already done it, so maybe that's the easy way is grow up in a place that very few people have heard of, and then you can write about it. Right, right.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you already mentioned we're, we're talking here at the University of Victoria mm. where you taught for many years. Uh, what, what did that give to you, the ability to be around young writers, new writers, uh, and you know, be with them kind of in their earliest steps as they're, thinking about writing uh, and going from kind of high school idea of I like to write stories to to really kind of spreading their wings
1: well the first thing it gave me when I started teaching was imposter syndrome because Mm -hmm. I thought what right do I have to be teaching anybody writing I actually have I remember standing at the blackboard writing notes on the board for one of the very first classes I was teaching and this thought entered my mind you're from Vanderhoof what are you doing here? What are you doing up here writing notes on the blackboard for students? And I, I just have this flood of imposter thoughts. Um, but once I got confident enough to say, I don't know the answer, but let's figure it out, that actually just released me into full enjoyment of teaching. Uh, the first few years, I definitely felt I was trying to be some wise person that I was not. I was in my 20s when I started teaching. And I learned along the way. I actually learned to be a better writer by teaching writing. And the first-year writing students who came into the program, oh, I just love them because I felt like, first of all, I could teach something to them because I remember coming in as a first-year student, and I'm sure some come in with far more knowledge than I ever did, but I I felt like I can teach them something. I, I can tell them the things that were told to me and that were really helpful, things like... Avoid cliche and stay away from sentimentality. And, you know, this is why it's important to use sensory language. The, the basics of writing. I loved that. I loved being able to teach that. But I loved, too, seeing um, these students come from places like Vanderhoof. Students who would come from away from small, speck-on-the-map towns and feel that they didn't really belong and I would, I, would want, I would actually get students to raise their hands, and those first students would say, how many of you are from a small town? And these hands would go up, and I would say, oh, you're going you're gonna to shine in this program because we need your voices. And that was something that was done for me as a student. I remember telling my poetry instructor, who was Patrick Lane, the late Patrick Lane, just an amazing writer and an amazing teacher, I remember telling him I was from Vanderhoof, and he proceeded to tell me a story of being passed out in a snowbank at some point in his in his life, uh, somewhere along Vanderhoof, getting stuck in the ditch or something. And I thought, wow, a writer was in Vanderhoof, and and the poems that he showed us in that first year writing class, they referenced places like Hundred Mile House, these towns I had driven through, that I knew, and I thought I can write about where I come from, and that was so liberating and encouraging and so I loved as a teacher to be able to give that permission to students it was just a permission I was handing I was handing down it'd been handed to me and it was like my turn to hand down to these students who felt maybe that their stories weren't important their lives were insignificant and I was like no no no, no. your voice is going to shine because you're going to tell a story we haven't heard before you're going to tell us names of things we haven't heard before you're going to show us a place we haven't seen before and I loved doing that as a teacher.
0: I think I've got the story right here. You once gave out chocolates and love poems to strangers on Valentine's Day. (laughs) What's uh, what's the the full story behind that?
1: Oh, well, that was I was serving as Victoria's poet laureate. It was the first time the city had had a poet laureate. So the great blessing of that was that there was no precedent set. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was doing, and they didn't really know what a poet lawyer should do, so we were figuring it out together. But one of the things I really wanted to do was make poetry um, a welcome place for people, again, who are like the people I grew up with. Most of the people I grew up with, they wouldn't be reading poetry. I didn't grow up reading poetry. But I kept thinking of people, when I said I write poetry, where they'd get that look on their face, like, oh... She's one of those people. And I think, no, no, no. Sometimes I have roadkill in my poems. I would need to defend, you know. My poetry is accessible. Not that it's all violent. But I wanted them to know that poetry can be a welcoming place, a welcoming kind of literature. So part of the Poet Laureate gig was coming up with community events that would showcase the literary arts, specifically poetry, and would bring the public in. So, gosh, I thought, well, I'm just going to go full on Mennonite and bribe them with food. And I thought, Valentine's, let's go love poems and get chocolate. So we got some local businesses to donate chocolate and prizes. I was just bribing people to come basically. And people came. And then a friend of mine, a fellow writer named Wendy Morton, who just is known for doing wild and crazy things um, and will do anything. She's so bold. She'll just talk to stranger's beautifully and she's taught me a few things but she said well we should write poems for people who come and I thought I can't write on the spot for people and she could but um yeah we had people put their names in a box and we drew names and said you're gonna have a poem written for you so I would sit with these people who'd come to a poetry reading and many of them had never been to a poetry reading so I was thrilled about that I would hand them some chocolate and then I would say tell me something about yourself and they'd say typically I don't really have anything interesting about myself And I'd say, well, where did you grow up? Or what kind of things do you love to do? And then they would start talking about their lives. And inevitably, they'd be brilliantly interesting, because people are. And they didn't know they were interesting. And then I would have the privilege of writing a poem. I would usually take a few days to do it, then email it to them. And the response was always wonderful. Not that the poem was some masterpiece work of art, but it gave them back their life. Um, no, no, I don't mean it. like, I gave them their yeah. life back. But it gave them back what they had said to me. It gave them back in words where they looked at their life objectively on a piece of paper and went, oh, my life is interesting. And not because I did some great thing, but because they just had words on a page to show them. And uh, it was wonderful.
0: What is the best piece of writing wisdom that you've been told or read somewhere or perhaps discovered for yourself
1: i remember hearing all the writing cliches probably in my early days of of just grabbing any book i could grab about writing find your voice write what you know and i think it was actually bill gaston who uh, taught in the department i remember him saying write what you want to know and I don't know if he was echoing another writer, but that stayed with me. Write what you want to know, not what you know already. And what it, what it opened up in me is this, this realization that first and foremost, I'm writing for me. I'm, I'm the first audience and I have to be surprised by what I'm writing. I have to be curious about what I'm writing. I have to take pleasure in it. I have to be maybe surprised and shocked sometimes. Maybe I, I have to look at what I've written and, and wonder where did that come from? But this idea of going into writing, not knowing, but wanting to, that it's such a wide piece of advice, but that is something that I still have a firm belief in. And I would say that to anybody. I was like, well, now write what you want to know. And I'm just parroting what Bill Gaston um, said, what I heard him say at a reading years ago, but I, I still do that. I want to keep doing that. I don't want to know everything before I write it. I want to write to figure it out or find out and to be curious.
0: Carla, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thanks, Martin. It's been fun to chat, and uh, from one Mennonite to the other, I feel like I should say something really German here, but um, <laughs> or hand you food. But uh, yeah, I love that you have this uh, this this story too, and you you get you get a lot of what I'm saying. So, thank you. <laughs>
0: That's it for the show. Thanks for listening and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Carla, her book, Every Little Scrap and Wonder, is out October 15th through Greystone Books. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor and hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and most of all, tell someone else you think might like it. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can, you can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at martin underscore bauman. Theme music for Story Untold is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a Story Untold. See you next time.